Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I've been around cybersecurity for 20 years. I have a lot of experience working with vendors, customers, and my main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisory. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I'm always intrigued to learn how companies start. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own companies. This podcast is affiliated with Security Architecture Podcast. I have Harley here to talk about his journey and how he started his company. Harley, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Tell me about yourself. I come from an engineering background. My background is mostly in computer science, specifically in, in cybersecurity. And I studied out at Stanford in Palo Alto. Right out of college, I, I actually started a, a, my first company where I was the CTO. And I was I say the CTO, I was the CTO of one when we started the company, built the engineering team out there to about 20 of us. And after that, I ended up moving out to New York, where I'm currently based. I was working on one of the infrastructure teams at Bloomberg, the financial tech company, and then ended up actually working as a venture investor for a couple of years at Bloomberg Beta, which was a pre-seed fund focused on the future of work. And that was where I started mostly focusing on cybersecurity and on developer tools, just given that was my background. And that was really what led me to come across the idea that became Enigma. So tell me quickly, what's Enigma? Do me the elevator pitch. So in a nutshell, we're a cybersecurity talent platform. We think of ourselves as a one-stop shop for, to help CISOs and security leaders build and maintain strong, uh, a strong and diverse workforce. Um, specifically, we're focused on uh, initially talent screening. So what we're trying to do is enable leaders to identify and hire the best cyber talent. Uh, and we do that through short interactive scenarios that we call puzzles that evaluate how candidates think, how they solve problems, um, similar to what they might see on the job. And companies have been using this to ultimately shorten their hiring cycle, um, save their team's time from what we call wasted interviews, and also open the aperture by screening talent based on their what they can do and not their pedigree. Interesting. So you were working in Bloomberg and you got the idea. How? Why? What did you saw? There was a gap. There's something you were missing. You were frustrated. Yeah. When I was investing, I got a chance to really expand the network of CISOs and security leaders that I had. I had run the hiring process, both on the engineering and on the security side, a number of times and had lost count of the number of times that I'd started an interview. And then six minutes into the interview, you kind of realize this person maybe isn't the right fit. But you now have another 40 minutes on the calendar and you need to kind of fill that time. And as I started talking to other CISOs and other security leaders, I realized that this was a fairly universal problem. This challenge around hiring and finding talent was something that was felt very broadly. And as I dug in a little bit and started to talk to CISOs and dig into, well, what's going on here? I sort of divided the problem in two. There's what I think of as the physical problem you know, which is, I call it the butts in seats problem, right? This idea that there's not enough butts to fill the number of open seats. And then there's this second problem, which I, you know, think is maybe a little bit more interesting and is really where we're focused, which is how do companies screen people going through that pipeline? And to me, and to a lot of the CISOs I spoke with, existing screening tools fell short and ended up self-selecting for a very homogeneous looking pool. So 
people would often use things like certifications. There can be some uses for certifications. I think that they're helpful in some cases, but more often what I think is, do you or does your employer have $5,000 to pay the company who manages the certification so you can take the test? You know, education, work history is another metric often companies would use can be useful again, but you end up seeing a lot of people who look like me, right? Who went to a place like Stanford, got a degree in something like computer science. A lot of them tend to be white guys. And ultimately, when you ask these hiring managers, well, what is it that you're looking for? It isn't your pedigree or what letters do you have after your name? It's, are you a good problem solver? Can you think forensically, peel back the layers of the onion? And of course, obviously, do you have that basic cybersecurity knowledge? And that was a very easy signal to miss when the tool that you have is essentially resume review before you then start sending these people to have these kind of deep technical interviews with members of your team. And so that really was the insight behind, okay, this is this is a problem and this is something that we can build a solution for. So you have an idea and you start with your procedures. Why would they would talk to you? Like you never did cybersecurity. People talk a lot about cold calling and all the annoying vendors, excuse my French, or all, all, the, all the vendors, why would they talk to you? It's a great question. I, I had some level of background in cybersecurity, not at the level of, of the people who ended up being our buyers. As a founder, you have to be a little bit scrappy about how you do it. It, it was not a glamorous process. What I did was essentially put together a, a cold email campaign. I almost treated it like a sales funnel. And I went out to, to a network of CISOs. I found their email addresses through various online databases that are out there. And, you know, rather than approaching these folks trying to sell them something, I sort of thought everyone's trying to sell a CISO. They're probably inundated with a hundred emails a day from vendors asking them to do something. I asked for their advice and I said, look, new into this space. I, I'm thinking about building this company. You know, this is something that I know is, is universally felt. Do you have 15 minutes just to walk me through what your experience is? And how have you found, how have you built these teams in the past? What have you seen that works? What have you seen that doesn't work? And people love talking about their own experiences. So I got a surprisingly high take rate from that. And that really kind of led to a lot of the initial customer calls. And a lot of those folks ended up being early pilots of the pilot users of the platform. And this kind of a question here, what's come for the chicken or the egg? Like how much do you pre-sell the chicken when you only, or the egg? I don't, I'm not sure what's come first. What do you sell the chicken <laughs> or the egg? Basically, that, yes, I have it, but it's not going to be ready for another five months. I was very open about it. I said, look, we are building this as we speak. And one of the advantages of being a founder and being at the very early stages is that a lot of senior executives want to mentor and advise and give back. And so I think my approach was basically to be very upfront and say, look, we're still building this. We're in the early stages. I would love your approach. The way that you're thinking about this problem of hiring resonates with how we're thinking about it. Do you want to spend an hour a month for three months just talking to me and, and I can show you the latest and, and you can give your feedback on, on what the product looks like, on how this would fit into your process, on what insights would be the most useful. And I called it a design partnership because it really was, right? Ultimately, these guys and these you know men and women who volunteered their time 
they their input helped shape what our MVP was. And so I think in a way, having them kind of build it with you also makes them more invested because then by the time you are ready to start selling and you are ready to start saying, hey, actually, you know, open this up to your teams and get them to use this platform, they're a little bit invested in it as well. So it kind of gives you a little bit of both the chicken and the egg. What about hiring? You need to hire people. And this is like an interesting question here. Who do you hire? People like you, people who are different than you, people who have different opinion, people maybe you bought head with them or they will agree with everything you say. I have a very specific way of building a team and I think it echoes a little bit the product that we're building. One of our insights is that you don't necessarily need to have had a shiny degree or gone to one of the five schools that everybody recruits from to be a great security engineer or to be a great security operations analyst. And, you know, what we're building, while it's complicated, isn't ultimately rocket science. And I think being an engineer myself and having a fair understanding of what we would actually need to build out the MVP, the direction I wanted to take was instead of looking for people who are going to be coming from the Googles of the world, the sort of fang companies of the world where they're used to a very, you know, high salary a relatively slow pace of work. Um, what I wanted to do was find people who are a little bit younger, who had that hunger, who were willing to be flexible and sort of flow with the startup that we were building and iterate really quickly into getting to, you know, finished product. So our first hire was as an engineer, you know, on the more junior end, but he's still with us and has just evolved so quickly over the past 12 months of being at the company that he's now as productive as anyone I've ever worked with at any of the companies that I started or worked at in the past. And so, and I tried to sort of carry that forward. So we've hired in, the, uh, our company is six at the moment. We have the half engineering. So three folks on the engineering team, we have a head of revenue and partnerships, and, and we also have a head of operations as well. There's a lot of tasks and a lot of things to do in a company. What help you to stay on track and what help you to understand that you're actually going in the right direction? So for us, you know, ultimately the metric that we care about is, is twofold. I'll answer the question generally first, and then I'll answer the question for us specifically. Generally, I would say at the early stages, you're completely right. There are 17 million tasks on your to-do list, and you can only focus on a very, very small subset on, of them. So prioritizing and choosing two to three or, or one to two sometimes metrics that really matter and optimizing everything towards hitting those metrics or figuring out what you want to figure out by by working on those metrics is is the most important thing so we've been very disciplined about choosing what we want to focus on and then everything else is secondary so for us there were two things there was ultimately revenue and growth, right? So number of customers inside the platform, can we in a repeatable way generate interest? Can we in a repeatable way move from a initial phone call to a demo, to a proof of concepts, you know, and, and so on, on the enterprise sales pipeline. And then the second thing is, you know, does the product work? So what we track in our case for the screening tool is really of the people who we recommend, of the people who do well on our assessments, how many of them 
end up making it to final stages of interviews and end up ultimately taking these jobs? And is that in a meaningful way shortening our existing companies or our, our companies existing hiring processes? And so really we are focused on those two things. Um, and beyond that, everything else has to sort of take a back burner. You know, of course, we're working on things like company culture, you know, making sure that we're building our company is fully remote. So making sure that we have the right processes and the right infrastructure in place so that information flows well and we can be as effective and efficient as possible with the team that we've got. But ultimately, what we track are those kind of two, we call them guiding lights, right? Is the guiding lights is the company values or what it is? Guiding lights are, are what we call these metrics, you know, these metrics around, are we moving the company in the right direction? Company culture, I think of a little bit differently. Company culture is how do we communicate? How do we give feedback to each other? You know, what's the cadence of meetings, the sort of more operational stuff. Can you share some of the metrics I'm wondering? Yeah. So for us, those, those metrics are tracking the number of candidates who go through our system and who then make it to late stages of, of an interview. So that's essentially val validating that the assessments and the screening that we're doing is working. So that's one of our metrics. And then the second is number of customers and usage in the platform. So how many companies do we have within our platform? How many assessments are they sending each week? Are those numbers trending in the correct direction? What about ease of use? You maybe have an amazing platform, a lot of customers, but people don't like to use the platform. How would you know about this? So that's a great question. One of the lessons that I've taken from Silicon Valley, and I think that there's a real obsession about it, which is an amazing thing, is this idea of building a product that is delightful, right? Something that is actually not just a thing that you have to use that is another piece of enterprise software, but that's actually fun to use and has a little bit of a point of view to it. And so it's really important to us that we make sure that you know, our customers enjoy using this software, the companies, uh, and, and, and not just the hiring managers, but also the candidates who are taking the assessments. This is something that is additive to a company's interview process, right? I'm, you know, again, sure that this is something you've seen in your life where there have been organizations out there who will give a candidate a four-hour take-home test that they have to go and do over the weekend, or they have to go and do, you know, one evening at work. And, that's always a terrible experience. And ultimately, if a company makes a candidate do something like that and then ends up not offering them the job, it creates a lot of ill will towards the company. And so for us, making that experience as, as sort of delightful as we can is so important. And so we track it in a few ways. You know, we have every candidate who goes through the system has the option to say, hey, this, you know, to give us feedback, right? To say, hey, this was a really useful, accurate um, assessment of my skills. Or, ah, this was a little bit, this took a little bit too long. I didn't like this question. This felt redundant, you know? And so we're tracking feedback very carefully on, on, on the candidate side. And so far, obviously, I'm going to knock on wood here, but the feedback has been very, very positive. And then on the hirer side, we just make sure that we have exceptional customer service. So we, you know, A-B test a lot of our UIs. We release, we have a sort of pre-release cycle where we actually send new functionality out into the wild, have people click around in it, see where it makes sense, see where it doesn't make sense before we release it out to the broader, the broader audience. If you can go back year, two years, what is the advice you will give to yourself? That's a great question. You would be surprised how much of a product 
you can build an MVP for without actually needing to write any code. So the first version of our screening tool actually existed as a survey monkey, uh, where I, you know, came up with some questions. I, I sort of vetted them with cybersecurity experts. We were focused specifically on a single position, a security operations analyst at the time. And I threw those questions into a survey monkey and I had folks go through the experience of taking the test. And I had, you know, some of our early design partners agreed to have some of the folks on their team take the test via SurveyMonkey. And that validated so much of the business without us even having to write a line of code. And as you start hiring and as you start getting engineering capacity, it's very easy to fall into the trap that you now have the capacity to build something, so you should build something. And I think the longer I do this and the more I realize and the more sort of tangential lines of product that we start looking at, the more I realize we actually can test this without needing to build it. So what can we, if we're, we're starting to think about building upskilling modules. So using a lot of the content that we're currently using to evaluate talent, but to upskill existing teams and help CISOs provide transparency to their employees and you might have a security operations analyst and they might think, okay, I want to be a pen tester or I want to go into AppSec. What are the things I need to understand to get and, you know, how do I learn those things? We ultimately want to be that one-stop shop. And so we have been building out these modules around education, these modules around sort of talent gap or skills gap evaluation. And what we've been trying to do has actually be take a step back and instead of just devoting engineering resources to it, figure out what the mo minimum useful product is here and then throw something together and just put it out in the wild and say, okay, is this solving your problem? Because once you get to a yes, once you get a customer saying, hey, this is solving my problem, then you know that when you actually build your tool, it's going to be you know, incredibly useful and the experience will likely be a lot better than whatever you've jerry-rigged together. It's a great answer. Thank you very much. We're going to move and change gears. We're going to move to the dark side. Dark side is where you tell horror stories. Mm -hmm. Everybody that's still here, please don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. Maybe join our Patreon page as well to support the podcast. So Harley, tell me some horror stories. Yes. Yeah, so for us, we had a really interesting experience fundraising. I was very lucky to have worked at you know Bloomberg Beta and they really were the driving force behind the pre-seed round that we raised when I started the company last March. And that really got us to the point where we thought, okay, there's legs here. Let's raise a real seed round. And as we went out to raise the seed round, this was my first time ever being on that side of the table, driving the process and trying to raise you know, a more significant sum of money. And I quickly realized that it is very easy for investors to waste your time, right? And, and we were very disciplined about this at Bloomberg Beta to try and not be this way. And so I think I had a little bit of a skewed image of what all investors would be like. But as we, you know, as I started going out to more and more investors, what I started getting a little bit inundated with were these little questions that would take a long time to answer. So, you know, a VC might come back, you might meet a VC and then, that evening, they return a list of 12 questions that's going to take you 
two, three hours sometimes to put together really smart, thoughtful responses to. And then you just go back and forth, right? So I would, you know, put together answers for those questions and they'd say, oh, great, let's, here's a few other questions. Or they would say, oh, well, let's jump on a call. I will have a couple of questions on your answers. And it's very easy to get pulled into the back and forth. And all of a sudden you just have no time and you're having 30 of these conversations at any, you know, at any given moment. So it really does become a full-time job fundraising. And the best advice I got during this process was to be brutal and treat investors like a sales funnel. And whenever you have a call with an investor or whenever they ask you for something, always follow up with the question, you know, how is this going to get me closer to you writing a check or you not writing a check? Because I think that was something that I felt prey to a little bit was, you know, just continually getting into this loop of questions and answers and questions and answers. And the investors who ended up giving us terms, it was a very quick process. They had the questions, we answered them, and they got conviction very quickly. And what I think I've learned from that is the more questions a VC asks, the longer they sort of drag out the process, the more you can assume that it's a waste of time and they're now just looking for a reason to say no. So I think if I could go back and run this process again, I would be incredibly brutal about saying if a VC comes back and says, hey, can you put together A, B, C, D? Then going back and saying, yep, I will do it for you. But I just want to know once you have this, what else do you need to get to an offer or to get to a pass? And just really be brutal about managing the process because otherwise it can just sink so, so don't be afraid not. from the VCs to manage the conversation and not let them manage and decide how it's going to be. Exactly. That's actually a great way of phrasing it, right? Manage. You've got to manage the VCs. Don't let them manage you. Absolutely don't be afraid. I heard this multiple times and people also an M&A activity. People ask for one document, then another document, then another document, mm. become like a Pandora box. Like seriously, guys, you cannot just have all the documents in, in one list. Yeah, we saw that as well when I was on the investing side. We saw M&A happen where they'll get the letter of intent or whatever whatever it ends up being. And then six months later, they're still doing legal diligence and then it can just fall apart at a, on a whim. Great. Anything else you want to share? I think we've gone through a lot of this. I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm happy to talk a little bit about the path to finding a founder, you know, to sort of founding this solo. I think that's just something that I, I was into to other founders about this and sort of building up that network and trying to understand the advantages and disadvantages of starting a company by yourself. And I can talk to that if it's interesting, but you know, obviously um, only if, if it would be relevant to, to the audience you've got. Yeah. I think it's important because people not always know, do they need a founder or they don't need a founder and what are the advantages? So I'm a solo founder. I did spend a lot of time prior to starting this company going through what they called co-founder dating. So talking to other people who were in a similar boat who wanted to start something and kind of riffing on ideas, riffing on, on, on this idea as well. And I think it's very easy to fall prey to the idea that, you know, having a having a co-founder is a, is a thing that you absolutely need to have. And there's some truth to the fact that if you are a solo founder, you are going to have your hands in more pies because you just have to, right? You are, in, you're not going to be able to divide the labor into business and technology or 
product and go to market or however you however you might divide responsibility but that said i think in a lot of ways being a solo founder is is you know gives you some advantages because it means that making a decision is quick right you are the decision maker and if you make the wrong decision it's on you but the decision was made and i i've seen when you have an especially when you have an equal number of founders often decisions can get sort of torn or you can end up compromising and trying to come to a solution that makes both people happy that doesn't really get you quite as far as where you need to be as quickly as you need to be there and so for me that I think long term ended up being a lot of advantages you know I think having a technical background certainly helps if you're building a technical product but I don't think it's a requirement yeah I think that's most of what I would say about sort of solo versus co-founding because I, I get that question so often I get that question of you know should I have a co-founder how many co-founders and I think the ultimate answer is this if this is your idea if this is something that you you're passionate about building it's whatever you can find and if you can't find someone who you want to work with then do it yourself and surround yourself with great people and build a great network of advisors and sounding boards. You know, I also often say to people, get a coach. You know, people don't think that they need a coach often in the earliest days, but I would say in the earliest days is exactly when you should be getting a coach because you're learning so much and you're, you often just need someone to talk to who's a little bit further apart, who isn't as close to the business as you are and can kind of see the forest through the trees. You know, sometimes that'll be your investor. Sometimes it'll be your dad. You know, sometimes it'll be your fiance. Sometimes it'll be your, your therapist. But I think making sure that you have that network is such an important thing if you're going to be a solo founder because it can get very lonely. Thank you very, very, very smart advice. Harley, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you everyone for listening. Please join the podcast. Please subscribe and comment and we'll see you in the next episode.